Let's open with a word of prayer, and then I will jump right into our text, and we'll get going. So, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for our church family. Lord, we thank you for those who will be visiting with us today and tomorrow as we approach Christmas. And we thank you, Lord, for sending your son to the earth as a baby so that he could live a holy life and die in our place on the cross. Lord, help us to have a a wonderful day of worship together, both this morning and this evening and also tomorrow night in our Christmas Eve service. And we do pray for Michelle, Lord, that you would um, help her to recover Continue to protect our pastor, Steve, to help him avoid this flu. And, and Lord, we just pray that you would bring healing to the family quickly. And I pray now for us as we dive into this challenging text, Lord. I pray that you will help me to be clear. Pray that we would not get confused needlessly by what's here, even though the words are challenging. And I pray, Lord, that you would protect our hearts so that we would rightly understand the truths that are found in your word. We ask these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are continuing. It's, by my notes, it's part five. It's the fifth message on First Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 22. It's this last section in what we call chapter 3. And the review I'm going to give is a little bit brief, but I'm going to try and give some details because the overall point of this text is fitting with the overall theme of First Peter. First Peter, I think the overall theme is to be holy as God is holy. That's what Peter says, First Peter 1, 14 to 16. We don't sin like we used to, but we become like our Savior. Be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. And as we get through the book, as we've turned into chapter 3, beginning around verse 12, it becomes a transition to where it's still talking about being holy, but it's talking about it in the context of suffering, when there's injustice, perhaps even persecution because of Christ. And so Peter has given us a lot of practical instruction already about how to be holy in various aspects of life, how to be a witness with our lives. And then in verse 17 of chapter 3, He says this, For it is better if God should will it so that you suffer for doing what is right rather than for doing what is wrong. And that's true, but it's a challenging teaching. And I think what's following, verses 18 to 22, is supposed to encourage us not to be discouraged if, in fact, that happens to us. So what if we do everything right, we're obeying the Lord, we're living holy, and we still suffer? He doesn't want us to be discouraged by that. And I think the overarching point that I've reiterated week after week in 18 to 22 is that God can bring good even out of injustice. And the illustration that he has in verse 18 that goes to 22 is really just pointing out how God brought about good out of the injustice which came upon Christ. Now I'm going to read this whole section and then I'm going to try and bring us up to speed and then I'm going to jump into the the controversial part we're on today, but beginning at verse 18, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water." 
So as I broke this down, it was a simple two-part outline. And the first week we covered the first point. It's two proofs that God can bring good out of injustice. And the first point was that the unjust death of Jesus secured our salvation. The unjust death of Jesus secured our salvation. And that's what's found in verse 18. Christ also died for sins once for all, the just, him, for the unjust, us, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in flesh. This was the ultimate injustice from a human standpoint. Jesus was innocent. Even a wicked man like Pilate knew there's no guilt in him, and yet wicked men still cried for his crucifixion and put him to death. It was unjust. It was unfair. In our day, we would say he was wrongly convicted, He was sent to death and he was innocent. And yet God used that to save us. That's how we were brought to God. Now Jesus had a real human body that died and that real death is what helped. It's what allowed us to be saved. So that was a simple enough point. The unjust death of Jesus secured our salvation. And I think Peter's just saying, look, don't be too upset if something unfair is happening because God can bring good out of unfairness. That's what happened with Jesus. But the second point, which I think is very clear, is where we wind up with verses that have a lot of controversy. The second point is the resurrection of Jesus declares his ultimate victory. The resurrection of Jesus declares his ultimate victory. Victory, And we've already seen several issues of controversy, and I can't go through and reteach all of them. The teachings are online. You can find them. But as I said when I started this, respectable scholars are all over the map. I mean, there's always passages where unbelievers are all over the map, but this is one where godly men really don't have a consensus. But they really do believe the main points which is what I've already read about Jesus and then Jesus' resurrection. It's what's in between the explanation where things get a little dicey. It starts with that phrase, but made alive in the Spirit. Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And as I explained, though some think that means the Holy Spirit, I don't believe it's talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. I think it's saying that Jesus was made alive in the spiritual realm such that even though he still had a body, that when he was resurrected, he could tell his disciples, touch me, put your hand in my side. I'm not a ghost. So he had a real body, but he also could transcend physical barriers now. He could operate in a spiritual realm. It's seen by the fact that at the end, we're going to see that he's in heaven. It's not something you and I can do. But beyond that, on the earth, it seems like He was able to go through walls. Either he was able to appear or or disappear at will, or he was able to walk through walls. And I think what Peter is saying here is that after Jesus died in the flesh, his physical body, when he rose again, he was able to operate in a different way. So he was made alive in the Spirit, and then this is where things really get dicey. Because what he says next is explaining what Jesus did when he was made alive in the Spirit. And we spent a couple of weeks talking about that. In which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Just going to summarize without going back through it all of the issues there, but what I believe it's saying is that there are some demons 
who sinned of such a nature that God imprisoned them in a place that the Bible refers to as the abyss, a place of darkness. When Jesus was walking the earth, there were demons basically saying, are you here to torment us before the time? They didn't want to be sent to the abyss. In fact, one day, according to the book of Revelation, Satan will be sent to the abyss for a thousand years. This is a place of darkness. When you're in the abyss, you are off the grid, so to speak. There are demons from the time of Noah that sinned in such a manner that God locked them up and they've been in darkness ever since. Such that when Jesus came, he interacted with demons, he cast out demons, he was tempted by Satan, but there were some demons that were locked away. And I believe what Peter is saying is that after Jesus had risen again, He died, then he rose again. After he rose again, he went to the abyss because he was in the spirit. He could transcend the physical world. He could go into a spiritual place and he proclaimed victory to those demons. They wouldn't have known that it was finished. And he could go and proclaim to them his victory. My children are redeemed. Your judgment is assured. Again, that was a couple of weeks teaching. You can go back and find all the details of that. That's the gist of it. And again, he references Noah because I believe, best understanding of all of Scripture, that the sin that these imprisoned demons engaged in occurred in that time frame. And so Peter mentions the historical reality of Noah When God sent the worldwide flood, only Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives survived. Peter's acknowledging that historical reality. There were eight of them that survived. And as he gets to the end of his statement of that, he says something that makes it even more challenging, which unloads a whole new boat of controversy. But as he ends... Verse 20, he said, during the construction of the ark, he was talking about waiting, kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And that caused Peter to say that the waters of the flood are like something else, and that opens a whole other can of worms, and we're going to deal with that can of worms today. Verse 21. Again, this is all part of the resurrection of Jesus declaring our ultimate victory. The big picture, I've said it over and over again, Jesus wins, so we win. Even if life is unfair, even if life is hard, even if you're mistreated, even if you do the right thing and you suffer for it, Jesus wins, we win. Verse 21. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Not the removal of dirt of the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter wants to magnify, I believe, the salvation that we have through Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Yet when Peter references Noah and the flood, and then immediately mentions baptism, it has caused some people... To go badly astray. To teach heresy. To teach false doctrine. 
Now, I'm going to try as best I can to go through this methodically and address these issues. And if you have questions, feel free, you can ask me questions later. I should have said you could ask Pastor Steve questions later, but um, I would never do that to him. But he starts out, so let's kind of break this down. He says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. This is where we're going to camp for a little bit because this becomes the problem. The first thing is the word that. Corresponding to that. What is he talking about? He's not talking about the imprisoned demons. He's not talking about the proclamation that Jesus made. That, the most logical reference, is to Noah and his family surviving in the waters of the flood. So corresponding to Noah and his family surviving God's judgment through the flood, baptism now saves you is how Peter phrases it. Clearly, and in some manner, and we're going to get into that, he's saying that the waters of the flood... and Noah's survival of those says something, picture something, has some relation somehow to Christian baptism. And it's not the central point, but the clear terminology here, the baptism being referenced is full immersion. It's the type of baptism that was done by John the Baptist where you go down in the river. That's the phraseology, that's the terminology. And yet Peter here isn't talking about the specific baptism of an individual. And I don't think he's talking about just the physical act of somebody going underwater. He's talking about baptism in its Christian historical context. In other words, that rite that we practice, that the church has universally practiced for all those years. He's referring to the act of baptism, but the meaning of the act of baptism to the church. And he's saying that the waters of the flood on which Noah and his family rode to safety in the ark are symbolically related to the baptism practiced by Christians. So we have to think a little bit here to get into this. It's not your typical Christmas message, but it's where we are in the text. So we'll get there. But I don't ever recall going to a baptism at Lakeside. I've been here since 2007. And I was baptized myself in 1993, and I've been in churches that practice baptism since then. I don't ever recall a baptism where someone, any of the pastors, stood up and said, Well, like the flood that destroyed Noah, tonight we're going to baptize some believers. The imagery doesn't sound right to us. It's not sounding comforting. It doesn't naturally jump out at us. But Peter intended it to be comforting. He intended it to comfort believers who were struggling. So I'm going to address first what I think the gist of it is. Even though that's not the full scope of the controversy. Here's what I believe Peter is saying in this big picture. He's saying as the waters of the flood represent the salvation of Noah and his family in the ark, the waters of baptism represent the salvation of believers. I think that's the gist of it. A few people were brought through God's judgment through the waters of the flood. 
Just as there are a few people who are saved from God's ultimate judgment because of the blood of Jesus Christ and the death and resurrection of Jesus is what is pictured in the waters of baptism, that thing that saves us from God's judgment. Noah was saved from God's judgment in one sense. We're saved from God's judgment in a far greater sense. Now, the picture being painted might seem a little bit odd because there were only eight people saved. There were only a few saved in the flood. But the reality is, if we take Jesus' words seriously of the billions of people that live on the earth, there's only a few being saved. Jesus said in Matthew 7, verses 13 to 14, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. Verse 14, for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. Probably that one verse did more to lead me to ministry than anything else. Why do I say that? Because I grew up around everybody that was a Christian. Everybody was a Christian. Everybody went to church. I mean, there was one family that was Jewish. They weren't Christian. When I was in high school, an Indian teacher from the country of India moved. He wasn't a Christian. He wore a turban. But beyond that, everybody was a Christian. And you look around America, everybody is celebrating Christmas. And certainly the invitation to salvation is wide. And the offer is expansive. But the fact remains that there are few who find the narrow gate. I struggled with that. Until I realized the difference between saying you're a believer and actually being a believer. The difference between being welcomed into heaven, well done, good and faithful servant, and somebody that Jesus said, depart from me. I never knew you. Despite you saying, Lord, Lord, in your Christian so-called acts. So, here's the gist of it. I think Peter is just saying... The salvation of Noah and his family from God's judgment is similar, sort of a foreshadowing of the salvation of believers from God's judgment, and that's what baptism pictures. But Peter's terminology is what sends people off the rails. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. It seems to say, in our normal understanding of English, and granted, the original language is in Greek, but the translation is not bad. Seems to say if you're baptized, then the act of being baptized saves you. And water baptism is something we choose to do. We don't force people to be baptized. You don't see the elders rounding people up and dragging them into the water. Baptism is something you do. And so some churches, and it's not as small a number as you would think... Some churches, because of this text, say if you weren't baptized physically in water, you can't go to heaven. In fact, there were some of those churches in my hometown. Where if somebody said they believed, then you dragged them into a river right then. Because if they died, they would go to hell. Because the text says, now baptism saves you. They would normally pair this with Peter's words in Acts. Acts 2, 37 and 38. In essence, they said, what do we do to be saved? And Peter said, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And so, 
churches that go off the rails on this point and teach that you have to be baptized to be saved, they take these two passages and say, see, Peter taught it. Just this week, I went on a website of a big denomination and their entire focus was on these two texts. See, that proves we're right and everybody else is going to hell. Their view is that a gospel that doesn't mandate baptism to get into heaven is not a gospel. But that's clearly not taught in Scripture. You never can take one or two verses, divorce them from the rest of the Bible, and say, aha, this is it. This is the language that Peter uses, but the meaning is different than how these people are narrowly interpreting it. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 makes it clear, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. I won't tell you the denomination, because I don't want you to go read it. I wouldn't spend any time looking this. But that's exactly what they were doing. They were boasting. Because we've done it. You guys haven't, but we got it right. We're baptizing people. We're following God's rules to get saved was the essence of everything they were proclaiming. Yet baptism cannot be a requirement for salvation. Why do I say that? Because the thief on the cross is in heaven. He is. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Luke 23, 43. Likewise, Paul made it very clear. We're saved by grace. I already read the one aspect of it. But it's not a matter of anything we do. It's our faith that even our faith is from the Lord. Romans 10, 11 to 13. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a promise. Now, of course, calling on the name of the Lord and believing in Him involves repentance. Matthew 4, 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But even our repentance, even our believing is all a gift from the Lord. John 6.44 No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So Peter is not teaching and the New Testament does not teach that you have to be baptized to get into heaven. So when Peter says corresponding to that baptism now saves you he does not mean to negate everything else taught in Scripture. We're saved by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. And even our ability to place our faith in Jesus Christ is a gift from God who's been drawing us and gives us a new heart with which to see Christ clearly. Yet, that being the case, we don't ever want to denigrate how significant baptism is. It does not save you. It is not the ticket to heaven as some would teach. 
But it is a central and crucial part of the life of the church. In fact, if you've not been baptized by immersion since coming to faith, you need to be. You need to get past the embarrassment, eh, I've been here forever. And the... No, be baptized. It's interesting, when Jesus gives the Great Commission, you can almost find what somebody's calling is by which part of the Great Commission they emphasize. So some will just focus on go. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. Go. And some will focus on the teaching, teaching them to observe all that I commanded. You've got to teach. But in between, Jesus said, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptizing believers is an essential part of the Great Commission and it is a central aspect of the life of someone who comes to faith. You can go throughout the New Testament, certainly in the book of Acts, and you see example after example. Someone comes to faith, then they're baptized. Acts chapter 8 records the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. Acts chapter 9, Saul, Paul, as we know him. Acts chapter 18 records an account of a man named Crispus in the city of Corinth. The normal New Testament process is that someone comes to faith, they repent and believe, then they're baptized. And we have to see that big picture to find what Peter's meaning is when he says baptism now saves you. It wasn't just a word. There was a historical context. People by this time understood that was the life of the church. You come to faith, then you're baptized, and that's a part of the practice of the church. And so when Peter is talking about baptism, I believe he's talking about that practice in the context of it in the life of the church. The overall focus This was the normal practice of the churches. This was how things were done. And so when Peter talks about baptism, he's talking about that broader, bigger picture. And that broader, bigger picture had an established meaning at that time that I think provides some context for us. And I've got to go to the words of Paul. But in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 5, Paul says something very helpful. He's talking about baptism. And I think if we listen to Paul's words and then put them in the context of Peter, it will come to light and we'll understand what's going on. And we'll be able to say to somebody that says, you have to be baptized to be saved, that that's not what Peter was saying. Paul says this, beginning in verse 1 of Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death. So that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. 
Baptism, properly understood, is simply our public identification with Christ. You hear Pastor Steve say this when he he talks about baptism. And the believer is showing that his old self is dead. He's identifying with Christ's burial. He's under the water. But then he raised up, identifying with his resurrection, raised to walk in newness of life. I think Spencer King's the first person I heard say that after he baptized somebody, and I thought, what a great thing. That's exactly what it is. So baptism is not our salvation, but it's a beautiful picture of our salvation. It's a beautiful picture of what Christ did and our public identification with what Christ did. And I think all Peter is saying is that that's what's being pictured. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ is what ultimately saves us. That's what it's being identified with. So when we obey the Lord's command to be baptized, we're publicly identifying with it and we're proclaiming it. With his death, his burial, and his resurrection... And I think Peter is simply saying that when Moses and his family were saved from judgment in the floodwaters on the ark, it was a picture, a foreshadowing, an antitype, is a theological term, of the future Christian practice of baptism which pictures our salvation through the use of water. And while the wrong people stop and they fixate on baptism now and saves us. I think this all really becomes clear when we read the rest of the verse. We can't stop. We've got to keep going. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter's making it clear. This has nothing to do with the ritual in and of itself. Again, when you read the Old Testament, there were countless rituals that Jewish people had to go through if they became unclean. I looked up a couple this week, but if you had a certain type of bodily discharge, you were considered unclean. And there were a whole host of things that if you touched this and somebody else touched it, they were unclean. And all these different hoops that you had to jump through. But then verse Leviticus 15, verse 13 Now when the man with the discharge becomes cleansed from his discharge, then he shall count off for himself seven days for his cleansing. He shall then wash his clothes and bathe his body in running water and will become clean. This was a normal practice of Judaism. You use the water and you get clean following the prescribed rules. In fact, it had gone beyond this such that by the time Jesus was there, there were all these ceremonial cleansings that they couldn't figure out why Jesus wasn't doing it. I won't read it all, but in Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to 39, for example, actually I will read it all. Um, Luke 11, 37 to 39, records this. Now when he had spoken, a Pharisee asked him to have lunch with him, and he went in and reclined at the table. We all understand Jesus ate with sinners. Verse 38, when the Pharisee saw it, he was surprised that he had not first ceremonially washed before the meal. You're supposed to pour water over your hands and go through the hoops. But the Lord said to him, now you Pharisees clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but inside of you you're full of robbery and wickedness. Here was the point. Peter's making it clear that he's not talking about one of those futile practices where people are ignoring the inner man and they're just going through the motions to say, I'm good. 
That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about some cleansing ritual. This isn't about washing the water off. When we do baptisms, and let me step to a side, that's why I'm personally, if someone came to faith and they were baptized, I've heard this many times, they go through a period and sometimes they get into sin. They fall away to a certain extent. And they do something that feels really bad to them. They want to be baptized again. I would always say no. That's a wrong view of baptism. Christ's blood on the cross cleansed you. Going through the waters of baptism five and six times is not a good thing. That's not it. Peter's not talking about just that simple act. He's talking about that inner conversion. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience. That's another way of saying someone's crying out to God for mercy. Borrowing a particular commentator, Wayne Grudem, who I like, he said, this is another way of saying a request for forgiveness of sins and a new heart. Obviously, our guilty conscience is the issue for all humans. Our salvation resolves that guilt once and for all. We have to struggle against it, but Peter's talking about our ultimate salvation. Ezekiel 36, verses 25 and 27 give a picture of the future cleansing that would be internal. And it's interesting, he uses the imagery of water, but this isn't talking about baptism per se. Verse 25, Ezekiel 36, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. That's a great Old Testament description of regeneration and salvation where God does the work. And that's all part of crying out for a clear conscience. I think the writer of Hebrews talks about how the Ezekiel-type cleansing that I just read affects our conscience. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 22, it says, Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near, meaning draw near to God, with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. Peter is talking about the spiritual realities that are symbolized by baptism. Baptism now saves you not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There's that identification. And that really brings the picture full circle. My ultimate point has been over and over, the resurrection of Jesus declares his ultimate victory. The victory that's ours if we're in Christ. And it's not the individual act of baptism that saves us, but baptism is a beautiful picture of the victory that is won for us because of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. So, let me regroup a little bit. 
go ahead and land the plane for today, catch my breath. Let's be clear. Peter is not teaching that baptism saves us, nor is he teaching that baptism is a requirement for salvation. That's not what he's doing. Rather, he's reminding us of the truth that baptism pictures our identification with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Noah was saved from judgment in the ark through the flood waters, so baptism pictures our salvation from God's judgment through Jesus Christ. That's all. That's what he means. That's what he's talking about. So we're almost done with this. And I thought about jumping to the finish line, but there's some important theology that I want to reiterate for our encouragement from verse 22. So next week, we'll bring this to a full close. But again, I can't stress it enough. Don't get caught up chasing all the rabbit trails. Let me tell you, and I mean this, whatever it's worth, you know, we've dealt with some challenging things of spirits and prison, and demon, all that stuff. I'm done teaching it. I won't ever look at it again until I come to another text that deals with it. I don't spend my time thinking about those nuances and those little side roads. Remember Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Is all scripture important? Of course. That's why we spend the time. We don't skip verses at Lakeside. That's why we dig into it. But don't get bogged down in that. Remember what's happening here. The big picture is, if you're going through hardship or injustice on the earth, don't despair. Jesus wins, so we win. Let me close our time in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word. Lord, I thank you for your spirit that guides us when we come to parts of your word that are challenging. Lord, I thank you for the faithful men who have diligently studied a lifetime that we can draw on their works when we're looking at a challenging text like this. Lord, I pray that you would keep us from fixating on minutia. Lord, your word is true. It's important. We will never skip your word. But Lord, those challenging things, those difficult to understand things, we can trust you and leave them in your hands. Lord, the big picture is incredibly comforting. Our Savior is alive. And his resurrection promises us victory over death because of our faith in Jesus. We thank you for that, Lord. And we ask that as we live life and occasionally we Endure things that aren't fair. Help us remember that even in unfairness, injustice, you can bring glory to yourself. So Lord, help us trust you. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.